Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I'm your host, Rora Rusi, Executive Director of Unity Through Diversity Institute, where we explore the future of our heritage. Please see our activities on unitytdiversity.com. That's unity, the letter T, diversity.com. Today, we're really delighted to speak with Dr. Brian Mark Rigg. He will be speaking about his book, The Rabbi Saved by Hitler's Soldiers, Rebbe Joseph Isaac Schneerson and his Astonishing Rescue, published by University Press of Kansas back in 2016. So we did a little exception here, went back a little bit, but um, it's an important enough book, and I think there's a lot in there, so we're going to unpack it. Welcome, Dr. Rigg, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Nora, thank you so much for having me. And I don't like to introduce people because I'd rather you have your focus. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, well, thank you. Uh, I, I was born in, in Arlington, Texas, uh, grew up in a very uh, Christian environment. Uh, when I was at Yale University, I spent some time over in Germany and doing research on my family's ancestry since in the early 90s with the reunification of Germany in the fall of Eastern, uh, you know, communism, if you will, throughout Europe. Um, I was able to go to a lot of the towns where my family came from and do research. And I found some Jewish background, and that really influenced me to go, okay, why didn't I know this about my background? What does it mean to be Jewish? Um, why did the Holocaust happen? And so on. So I started studying more and more about World War II history and Holocaust studies at Yale University under uh, Jeffrey Sammons, Paula Hyman, and Henry Turner. And uh, as I was marching in into that realm of research, I also came across a unique uh, chapter of the Holocaust, if you will, about Jews and men of Jewish descent who served in the Nazi military during World War II. Uh, I had watched the film Europa Europa uh, in uh, Germany uh, this uh, summer that I did a lot of research on my family's background. That was at the summer of uh, 1992. And when I saw this film, Europa, Europa, in German is called Ishval Hitler, Jungen Solomon. I was the Hitler Youth called Solomon. It was a very fairly well-known film in the early 90s in Jewish communities throughout America. And it's about Shlomo Perel, who was a German Jew who escaped Germany and went to Poland. And then when Germany invaded Poland in 39, he escaped and went to Russia. In 1941, when Germany invaded Russia, he could not escape anymore. And when he was captured, he told his captors that he was an ethnic German. Well, they actually brought him into their military unit as a translator since he could speak Polish, Russian, and German. And he spent one year in their unit and then was sent back to a Hitler Youth Prep School uh, under the adoptive care of his commanding officer. And that's how he survived the war. Well, when I watched this film, Dora, I was sitting next to an old man who I'd actually helped find a seat uh, there in Berlin at this theater. And afterwards, he told me his story. And he was of Jewish descent uh, as well and had served in the Nazi military. So after this summer, I was thinking, what are the coincidences that this kid from Texas goes to Germany, finds out about his own Jewish background, and then he sits next to a guy, 
of Jewish descent. He served in the Nazi military watching a film about a Jew who served in the Nazi military. So these all kind of charged me to look into this more and more. And it, then it turned into my senior essay at Yale University. I got the Henry Fellowship, which is kind of like a mini Rhodes for Harvard and Yale to either go to Oxford or Cambridge. And I decided to go to Cambridge and study under Jonathan Steinberg. Many people know his famous rabbi father, Milton Steinberg, who wrote As a Driven Leaf. And I was able to study underneath him and continue on doing research. I ultimately did 500 interviews, and they're being digitalized right now. I'm going to be in the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, D.C. And I gathered around 30,000 pages of documents about this subject matter. Now, coming to our book, you know, so I got my master's and my Ph.D. from Cambridge, and it focused on this. And my first book called Hitler's Jewish Soldiers came out in 2002. So you were really just focusing on the Jewish or the soldiers with some Jewish roots. That's right. Yeah. What the Nazis called half Jews or quarter Jews are Mischlinge. Uh, it's a horrible German term, means bastard, mutt, half breed, and so on. So half Jews and quarter Jews, and then quote unquote what the Nazis called full Jews. These were my focus who had actually served in the, in the German military. Well, during the course of my studies, I came across this very interesting story about a, a guy named Ernst Bloch, Major Bloch, who was a half-Jew. And he was actually Aryanized, quote-unquote, by Adolf Hitler to remain in the military. And because he was expressing Germanic and Aryan traits, he got, quote-unquote, a hall pass from being brushed with the racial laws. And he was able to stay in uh, the service. And through remarkable circumstances, which we'll um, uh, talk about here, he was able to rescue uh, the head of Chabad at that time, Rebbe Joseph Isaacson. He was the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe. Most people know the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson. But Joseph Isaacson was his father-in-law and second cousin. So they were very linked. You know, the Chabad leadership was very dynastic. So it was usually through family connections that you got the leadership of Chabad. So when I found this out that this German officer in 39, who was a Jewish descent, rescued the most prominent Jewish leader in Europe at this time. A lot of people called him in American documents who were discussing this, the Jewish Pope uh, of Europe. And then he rescued him. I was like, that's kind of strange. And so I did work on it for an essay at Yale and then my master's at Cambridge. And then my mentor, Michael Barabaum, one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the Holocaust Museum in D.C., he had really supported me throughout all these years and supported Hitler's Jewish soldiers and the research and gave me a great endorsement. He kept on saying, you got to write this as a book. So I did more and more research, and then that led to uh, Rescue from the Right that came out in 2004 with Yale University Press. And when that came out, documenting this rescue, I got, in the next, oh, eight years, I got over 10,000 pages of new documentation from some of the major players in this rescue. And that led to me doing a second version a second edition, about 100 page longer, called The Rabbi Saved by Hitler Soldiers, which is what you've reviewed, and that came out in 2016. So that's that's kind of my academic journey getting us to this book. Uh, what people may be also interested to know about my background, besides I went to Phillips Extra Academy, Yale, and Cambridge. I'm very proud of these organizations. 
Um, I also did a little stint in the IDF, the Israeli Army. Uh, I studied in a yeshiva over in Israel to learn about my yukos, my Yiddishkeit, if you will, and, and my Jewish uh, heritage. Uh, also, I'm a retired Marine Corps officer. I believe in supporting democracy and serving this nation. I, if I could, I would make universal service uh, mandatory here in America, just like they do in Israel. It's a great way to bring the society together. Uh, I'm a proud father of uh, three children. I have a wonderful wife. And, um, you know, I now have my own private wealth management company. I was in academia for a while at American Military University and Southern Methodist University from 2000 to 2006. And I quickly learned I couldn't really feed my family being an academic. <laughs> we know that. Uh, it's sad. You know, the, if I became president, the one thing I would try to do is double the salaries of all uh, teachers across the United States immediately. Use the Finnish model. What Finland does with their, their teachers right. is remarkable. And I think that would really help our, our society uh, tremendously. But I was a teacher for a while. Uh, couldn't really support my family. So I went on to Wall Street. And now I have my own private wealth management firm, Rig Wealth Management. And so during the weeks and day daytimes, I take care of people's stocks, bonds, and cash management. I clear through Schwab, but I'm independent. Uh, and then in the evenings and the weekends, I still keep my foot in the academic world, Dora, and I write books about World War II and the Holocaust. And that's kind of my goal of doing Tikkun Olam, you know, trying to heal this world of documenting the victims, giving them voice, talking about these issues that are during issues of humanity, of how do we live a good life? How do we prevent genocide? When genocide is there, how do we fight it? Uh, when we find Nazi-like organizations like Hamas, how do we eradicate them and kill them? And so on. And so these are the big issues that I really kind of tackle with my books. Wow. And there's just so much to unpack there, but we're going to try to focus on the book here. I do have to ask, did you go to the Marines first or the IDF first? I did the IDF first. I did. Uh, it's a it's a special program that uh, educates Jews outside of Israel about Israel in preparation of possibly making Aliyah. It's a wonderful program. I still think it's in existence. It's called Marva. Uh, it's part of the Gatna program. Uh, and you learn Hebrew, you learn all about the different cultures, the different peoples, you learn about the military, you learn about weapons. It's a wonderful program. And the older I get, the more I appreciate doing that. So when I was in the Israeli army, I was like, you know what? I could never really be high up in the Israeli army because, you know, my language skills, I'm not part of this nation. And there is a little discrimination to people who make Aliyah uh, there for, for obvious reasons. And, and I understand what's why that is in the military, rising up to the ranks. But I said in America, I wouldn't have this problem. And my dad was a Navy uh, navigator. My brother was a Harrier pilot in the Marine Corps. Oh, wow. So I decided, hey, I want to serve this democracy, this America, do my part. So I joined the uh, the Marine Corps after the uh, Israeli Army. But that really motivated me to do so. That's amazing. I'm just in awe right now. And a little tired from everything you've been juggling, but uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go back into the book for a minute, or for a few minutes. Um, so so let's try to get in. You open the book with talking about Hitler's rise and what's going on in Europe, and you introduce um, his writings by saying that it was almost natural for uh, many Europeans who immediately accepted what. He wrote and, you know, Mein Kampf was the bestseller kind of thing. And there was uh, 
um, just accepted. Can you talk about the culture across Europe and why you think that is? Yeah, you know, when when I first started studying Nazi Germany and the Holocaust um, at Yale University in, in particular, and then also when I was at Or Sameach, uh Yeshiva in, in Jerusalem, you know, at first I was just thinking that it was just this virulent, uh, weird, anti-Semitic uh, uh, movement in Europe that was basically spawned by Christianity. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, Nostra Aetate, Vatican II, that did away with deicide, you know, that Jews in perpetuity are guilty of killing Jesus Christ, didn't happen until 1962 to 1965. That was the time of this Nostra Aetate. I mean, the Catholic Church was a little late in coming to that conclusion. <laughs> so you had a, a long tradition in Catholic churches, and all the major Nazis were fervent Catholics. Hitler was raised a Catholic, died a Catholic. He's never been excommunicated from the Catholic Church. A scandal, if you, if you ask me. You know, Hoss, the head of uh, Auschwitz, Catholic. Heydrich, the head of the SS, Catholic. Him, Himmler. Another, the V head of the SS, I should say, Heydrich was his second in command, Catholic. You know, I could go on and on. So the Catholic religion really, if you were to say Catholic right and Nazi uh, in any sentence, you could you could switch them out at this time period. So you had a lot of religious anti-Semitism that was part of Europe, no doubt. But why Hitler got such mass appeal and support is that he was looking at two things that he really hated, that he saw from the Jewish communities that he was in touch with. And that was, he saw the ultra-Orthodox and their refusal to serve in the military. He saw them as cowards. Now, what's interesting, when I was in the Israeli army, the hatred toward the Dosin, the ultra-Orthodox, and their unwillingness to serve was palatable. In fact, my drill sergeant says something by the Jews. I want to point out by the Jews in the army. Yeah. Yeah. Fellow Jewish, uh, you know, comrades of mine were very negative on especially Hasidic Jews and their unwillingness to serve in the military and just, you know, they'll take welfare, they'll vote, but they won't actually have any skin in the game to defend the nation. And my drill sergeant actually told me when he found out about my Holocaust background and that I, I was a Holocaust historian, he basically spit on the ground and said, had Hitler killed all the ultra-Orthodox, this world would be a better place. Now that's horrifying, but that sentiment was also present during the Nazi era. And Hitler saw a lot of the ultra-Orthodox, especially in Graz and Vienna, and their unwillingness to assimilate and their unwillingness to support Austria and Hungary during the war. Now, a lot of secular Jews and reformed Jews in World War I were extremely brave patriots. In fact, more Jews died for Austria and Germany in World War I than all Israeli conflicts to date. So there was a mass movement of Jewish patriotism, but this is not who Hitler was really looking at. He's looking at the ultra-Orthodox. So when you read Mein Kampf, he's saying these people, they don't serve, they don't assimilate, and they're parasites. A lot of people, even moderate Jews and Reformed Jews at this time, um, would agree with him. Uh, so you you got to understand that his anti-Semitism wasn't, you know, coming out of left field, if you will. That was one reason. The other reason is communism. 
you know, when you look at some of the major leaders, Lenin had Jewish background, Trotsky had Jewish background. We know Karl Marx, the father of uh, communism, is Jewish. So when World War I uh, came to an end, people failed to remember that Germany was split uh, uh, all across political lines in a massive civil war from 1918 to 1919. People were killing each other, the Fry Corps, the Spartacus groups, communists and nationalists, if you will, in Germany on the streets of Berlin, the streets of Hamburg, the streets of, of Munich. There was chaos. And Hitler's looking at this going, this chaos is brought here by the communists. And they're right. trying to take over. Where does communism come from? Judaism. Where do these ultra-Orthodox people who don't serve, where do their unpatriotic ideas come from? Judaism. And so that's his big thrust in Mein Kampf and a lot of his speeches. And that spoke to a lot of people, even German Jews. There was German Jewish movements in the early 30s supporting Hitler in his push to get rid of the ultra-Orthodox Jews, especially those who had come from Poland, and get them out of Germany because they were un-German. So it's much more gray when you look at this uh, at the beginning because, you know, any halfway decent person, when they're looking at the Holocaust with today's modern eyes, they're like, how could a nation of Beethoven and Bach and Nietzsche do this to a group of people who were, by and large, the Jewish community as, as a whole in Germany, law-abiding, very patriotic, very educated, very assimilated? But Hitler just focused on these two groups and became very obsessed with it, and he needed an enemy. He even said this. He says, if we didn't have the Jews, we'd have to invent them, because you always need an enemy. Oh. You know, and he was basically part of a 2,000-year-old tradition of the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Martin Luther was no friend of the Jews. Uh, of picking on the Jews because they had not converted to the main religion of the land, which was Christianity. So I go into this to help people understand more uh, about how this could happen and the the atmosphere that you would have found yourself in in Austria and in Germany in the 30s had you been teleported back then uh, with a time machine. Because a lot of people truly don't understand that. And uh, when I tell my students when I was a professor about this, they started kind of understanding it more. And to understand it more means you'll have better weapons later on in life to fight. It. You'll know what to look for and see and what are weaknesses in people's speeches and so on. Right. And I think that interconnectedness or interfight inner fighting among the Jews is also one of the things that you highlighted. And I think... Um, there's a, I won't, don't want to bring in too much of Israel today, but there is a movement now for a lot of the Orthodox to join the army um, yeah. and they're doing it on their own. But here, that's why I, you see the support. support. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard that too. To be fair to the dosim, and, 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 and to my knowledge, I'm not, not well-versed in, in Hebrew. I, I had a working knowledge of it, but I think that is a derisive term when people use that term in the dosim, but that was used all the time in the Israel uh, Israeli army. But you are right. I think people, especially with October 7th, I think people are waking up going, you know what? Our faith is something that we're going to support, freedom of religion here in Israel and whatnot. 
but we got to learn how to fight because we're a small minority, small democracy in a land of a lot of bad actors. And the only way to deal with them is to kill them. And and that's what we saw in Europe too, right? They were fighting against each other and then they were destroyed. Um, Lack of a better word. So, So you kind of gave an insight a little bit in when you talked about block into the concept of Aryanization so that Jews, again, there were some Jews or half Jews. I won't try to say the term. Um, I don't speak German. Um, but um, the, there there were these groups that did want to join and want to be a part of it. And then there was this Aryanization. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, this is something I think people really, they're shocked by these numbers. But yeah. any sociologist who reviews these numbers is not surprised by them at all. So Germany at its height under Hitler, you know, as far as all the lands that he got that weren't German-speaking, Memoland, Sudetenland, Austria, you know, with the Anschluss in 1938, so on. Uh, When you bring all that German land together, you have about 90 million people. Uh, Out of that 90 million population, which is, this is remarkable, he mobilized 17 million of them, maybe north of that, maybe 18 million that were in uniform. Bothan SS or Wehrmacht. That's mind-blowing. I'm sorry. That's Yeah, yeah it's incredible German efficiency with uh, organization. It kind of reminds me of a side uh, story, and I'll come back and answer your uh, que- uh, question about who were these people and how did Block get Aryanized. Uh, just talking about the German, when they get it focused uh, you know, and organized, what they could do. So uh, I think the story goes as Charles de Gaulle was visiting Stalingrad after the battle. And he was actually with Khrushchev. And uh, de Gaulle was looking out at the uh, from a high point of this massive area that was just totally destroyed, one of the biggest battlefields of World War II. And he's like, what an amazing people, just uh, remarkable people. And Khrushchev, through the interpreter, uh, thought he was talking about the Russians. He's like, yes, we worked very hard. We lost one million people here dying. We will not give up the motherland. We are tough fighters. And then de Gaulle said to Khrushchev, I'm not talking about the Russians. I'm talking about the Germans, that they come 1,500 miles here and lay waste to this uh, area, the, one of the biggest battlefields known to mankind, the logistics to get here. What an amazing people. <laughs> you know, Khrushchev wasn't too happy about that. Yeah, but sure. there's, there's some truth to that as far as just their, their ability to organize, and they did it extremely efficiently. Now, what's interesting here is when you look at my group of people who I studied, the half Jews, the quarter Jews, and quote unquote the, the full Jews, and when I use these terms, ladies and gentlemen, please have them in quotation marks in your mind's eyes. They're Nazi terms, but they help us understand the history from back then. So the Jewish population of Germany, when Hitler took over power, basically about 600,000. And you got a couple hundred thousand, uh, you know, throughout the Hungary and, and, and Austria. But, you know, when Ger- Germany took, uh, uh, when the Third Reich took control, you had about 600,000 people who were affirming Jews, going to synagogue, members of the Jewish uh, community centers, and so on, the Yudhische Gemeinde and whatnot. But when you look at assimilation in Germany, starting, you know, even in the 1700s, but, you know, I really focused from uh, the late 1800s until 1933. You look at assimilation, you probably have a minimum of 2 million people who were either quarter Jews or half Jews affected by assimilation. 
And so when you look at this body of, of so-called Mishlinga, that the Nazis called them, half-breeds, uh, mutts, you, uh, you basically come to um, an acknowledgement that there was probably minimum 60,000 half-Jews and 90,000 quarter-Jews who served in the German army during World War II, looking at birth rates, conversions rates, uh, assimilation rates, and so on. So this 150,000 uh, is not really shocking when you know that they mobilized 17 to 18 million right. people of their population. But in light of the Holocaust, it's horrifying. And so I interviewed actually 500 of these guys. I documented by name, rank, birth date, so on, 2,000 of these guys. And um, and when I was looking into this, I found that a lot of them were not just common grunts because the Nazi military made it a requirement that these people serve. Half Jews and quarter Jews were required by law to put on the uniform and fight for Germany, which is something that is shocking to, to people. now. If you were more than 50% Jewish, then you were uh, registered with the military, but were not allowed to serve. But if you had two Jewish grandparents or one Jewish grandparent, you were required by law, but you were a second-class citizen in the military. You couldn't be promoted to certain ranks. You couldn't have certain responsibilities. You couldn't be in prestigious groups like you know fighter pilots or tank commanders and so on. So that's how you found those people is because it was on their actual records that they were. Yeah, I could go in and once I knew how to, what to look for in the records, I could document these people left and right in the uh, the archives in Aachen at that time, Berlin, and in Freiburg, Breisgau. So what's interesting is I started finding out that when somebody had done well or had a good military track record and was already in the military, he had the right to apply for Aryanization from Hitler. These were called Deutschblutigkeitserklärungen, uh, German blood declarations. And Hitler would literally look at their applications, and if they had shown their patriotism, were smart in their schools, looked blonde, and, you know, had, or were blonde and, and looked strong and powerful, he would say, with his limited knowledge of genetics, hey, your Aryan blood, quote-unquote, is dominating you. I will give you a certificate of uh, Aryanization. And so a lot of guys got this to remain in the service and be promoted up to the ranks. I documented six admirals. Wow. Uh, well, now it's seven because I just got uh, 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 information and research on Luchins, who was the head. Uh, he was in control of the fleet that the battleship Bismarck was part of that got sunk. He was the main admiral with the Leipzig and the Bismarck out there. And his second in command was Paul Asher, a half Jew. Lucian was a quarter Jew. So now it's seven admirals, one field marshal, and 22 generals who I have documented that Hitler actually Aryanized. And these guys were very prominent individuals. The second in command of the Luftwaffe, Field Marshal Erhard Milch, was a half Jew. The guy who developed the operational concept that we call Blitzkrieg was Helmut Wilberg, half Jew. Wow. Uh, one of the most successful admirals of World War II that sank the most tonnage of any admirals, 150,000 metric tons that he captured or sank in, as a service raider, was Bernard Roga. He was a quarter Jew, but according to Halakha, it came down through his mother's line, so he's considered a Jew. I mean, so you see all the complication here and also the uniqueness of this subject matter that nobody had looked at before 
And so as I went into this, nobody had explored these 150,000 guys, how they got in there, what their experiences were. And one of the main things I was focused on here is a question that has plagued those Holocaust historians for the longest time. And there were a couple of questions, you know, how did this happen in Germany? Second of all, when it was happening, what could you do to fight against it? And when it was happening, who knew about it? So I was thinking, how better to answer these questions, which I explore in all my books, than to talk to these men who were in the killing machinery, if you will. They weren't in, Most of them were not in the SS. There was a few, but most were not. But they were in the military, and they're losing relatives left and right. On average, every man I interviewed, 500. Every man I took, uh, took a number out, and I just kept on keeping the number constant. They lost between six and seven relatives in the Holocaust. So these guys really gave me insights about what you could know in a totalitarian regime, what you could do to resist, and what the knowledge was in real time about what was going on in the Shoah while these guys were wearing the uniform of their enemy, if you will. Right. It's incredible. But now if we take the other side of this, so we know who we're dealing with in terms of the Germans, but now... You emphasized in um, the in the sorry, I lost it a little bit of uh, Rabbi Schneer Zalman. He is actually fighting against this whole um, assimilation. There you go. I am blanking on words. Sorry about that. Oh, so, so Schneer Zalman, for those of you who don't know, Schneer Zalman is the first Lubavitcher Rebbe of Chabad, the Lubavitchers, and you know most people who are listening will probably know about the Lubavitchers. For those of you who do not know, it's one of the largest sects of Judaism out of the 13, 14 million Jews in the world today. Um, and largest being that not everybody is necessarily a Lubavitcher, but they have the Chabad houses, these little uh, you know places of worship and gathering all throughout the world, and that's kind of their mandate. They're like the Mormons of the Jewish world. And they go out and they set up all these communities. And, and they're independently people, funded. They each have to do yeah, their own. They each, yeah, the shlukin go out and they each get the money from the, the society and they raise their own funds. And a lot of people who attend Chabad houses and Lubavitcher places of worship are not necessarily Chabadniks or Lubavitchers themselves, but they go there because it's part of the Jewish culture, the holidays, they study, and so on. So this is a really massive movement that Menachem Mendel Schneerson really set in motion using American ideals and support and democracy in order to do so, which is a great side story. So Schneer Zalman... Was... Wait, I just want to point out that if you look today at um, Chabad, they're going to be the ones that are still wearing the full suits and they will have the beards and it doesn't matter where in the world they are. So you're going to see them. And when you go back to the origins, that's where it makes sense. And I just, I have to read this quote because I just think it expresses what we're talking about that, um, the Rebbe Schneer Zalman said, I was shown from heaven, heaven, that if Bonaparte would be victorious, Napoleon Bonaparte, the Jews would prosper and enjoy a more dignified position, but their hearts would become distant from their father in heaven. It just seems like that that's them taking themselves out, and that's where the hatred, I, I won't say that caused the hatred, nothing should cause that kind of hatred, but that's where a lot of it stems from, is this distancing um, that we were talking, even the Jews hating. Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, sure as Allman is setting up saying, okay, we need to stay insular. We need to stay right. in the ghetto. We need to keep our traditional beliefs. We cannot assimilate because if we do, we'll lose our Jewishness. And you hear this amongst many Orthodox Jews today. You know, don't marry outside the, you know, uh, ideological circle, much less the Jewish circles. You know, what's interesting with Shira Zalman, you know, if you look at all the people who are dressed like him, it, that's 17th century Polish nobility garb. That's not Jewish garb. You know, Moses wasn't wearing a caftan, <laughs> a, a strimal, or, you know, wearing these uh, these uh, titsits and so on, uh, like they have, based on European models of uh, uh, etiquette with um, dress. Um also, Schnur Zalman, Schnur is a bastardization of senor, you know. Uh, high, yeah, so they're they're taking that's not even Yiddish, and it's not even it's not even Jewish. Um, so I mean, they're constantly taking things from the outside world that they don't even really realize, but they're also doing everything they can to try to say insular. So you know, when Napoleon went into Russia, and 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 Schnur Zalman took his people and evaded. Uh, you know, Napoleon, he did, you know, he tried to escape him and he, and he was successful. Doing he died doing so, which is interesting. So if God has a sense of humor, him doing this act of taking them away from Napoleon, he actually died, you know, so you could say God was not in favor of what he was doing, but that's a whole nother theological. Camp. We don't get into the theology. Yeah. So he, he practiced this for the longest time and the Lubavitchers, even in world war, uh, before world war two, we're like most of the other Hasidic groups in many respects. You know, uh, the Bolvavir or the Gur, they were very insular. They were each trying to kind of one-up uh, another. We know about the virulent hatred between Satmar and, and Lubavitch today. And that was causing a lot of problems at that time period. Also, they were very against conservative, which is a very new movement, but reform is a bit, a bit older. Yeah. Very virulent in their condemnation of Reform Judaism and liberal Judaism, but that you know in his book Tanya, of which Schnur Zalman wrote, he's really big on deriding Gentiles and deriding people who go away from the Jewish faith as he defines it. Right, uh, and and this is you know in many respects the Hasidic movement is very new. It came from the Baal Shem Tov. It was a reaction to the yeshiva world and Sabbatai Svi's disastrous Messiah campaign in 1666. Um, and they wanted to have a new form of Judaism that you didn't have to be learned necessarily, but you could still be part of the experience of worshiping and teaching and preaching and so on. And so it's kind of like the Holy Rollers and the Great Awakening of America that you see is what the Hasidic movement was. And the Lubavitch became one of the most dominant ones in Europe uh, by 1939. And that leads us to, you know, my my book uh, that he was trapped in Europe when Germany started invading Poland. Right. So that's perfect because of that. My next question was going to be, can you set the stage now? So we have Rebbe Joseph Isaac Schneerson in Europe, different mm -hmm. places. You can in short, maybe you can tell us he has MS. He is sick. Uh, sickly, sorry, not sick, he's sickly. And he has all these followers and all these books around him. And he's trying to find his way here. Now, yeah. the stage. <laughs> yeah, so, so 
he was in Russia, uh, and our government actually intervened in the 20s to try to help him because he was imprisoned by uh, Russian authorities, especially the communists doing away with religion, and he was very stubborn, refused to uh, adhere to Russian Soviet law, and eventually he was kicked out of Russia. He was lucky to get out of there alive, and America was actually instrumental in helping him out. He did a goodwill tour in 1929, 1930 in America, actually met President Hubert Hoover, and met Justice Louis Brandeis and other prominent figures, which later would help him uh, get rescued from Europe uh, when he once again was under a hostile regime with Nazi Germany. So once he was kicked out of Russia, he went to Poland, and outside of Warsaw, in a town called Altvix, he set up his headquarters. And yeah, he was not a healthy man. You know, he uh, overate. He was uh, he was he was what we would call with the BMI. He was obese. He smoked all the time. He was a chain smoker. That didn't help him at all either. And then he had MS, and he was quite often had to be wheeled around in a wheelchair. And this just kind of sets the stage that when he was in Warsaw, when Germany attacked it, his because he had moved from Auschwitz into Warsaw, and they were trying to escape and get out of the war zone, but they got trapped. And he was partly the blank. At first, he's like, we're going to stay here. We're going to be strong. Hashem's going to protect us. Oh no, Blitzkrieg is more powerful than we thought, you know, which the whole world was shocked by how quickly Blitzkrieg was working. So he's trapped there and his followers are having to take him around Warsaw, you know, on boards or in a wheelchair, you know, in and out of places. And the way it's described, you know, part of it is hagiography. Lubavitchers are always given to embellish their history. Yes. And they lie. As most groups are, I mean, to be fair. Most religious groups, yes. I mean, you know, Christianity, you know, a guy dies on a cross, but three days later he rises from the dead. Really? Okay, that really happened? No, come on. I mean, you know, so it, it's got, and, and you know, and, and Chabad has had a lot of problems recently when Menachem Mendel Sirson died. A lot of people declared and still believe he is the Messiah. You know, I always tell people, if you want to know how Christianity happened, look at the Lubavitcher movement with their crazies focused on the Messiah, because many of them believe Menachem Mendel Sherston is the Messiah. Many of them have told me that he's still alive and he's walking yes. around. I mean, so you have this incredible uh, movement, very powerful, very religious, and given to hagiography. And the interesting story that comes out of Warsaw is that, you know, he's continually being missed by Nazi bombs and attacks. You know, he'll be praying in a room, a bomb will hit, shrapnel will go everywhere, and he's he doesn't get hit. Uh, as soon as they take him out of one building, he gets crushed by a bomb, and you know, and he's rescued. So they start building up this kind of narrative of, hey, God's on our side, and look how this holy man is wonderful. He's being rescued left and right. And so this is the scene that's going on. And when this happens, you know, as many people know in the Jewish community, uh, one Lubavitcher can make himself felt like a thousand men. You know, they're very passionate. They're very vocal. They're very instrumental in getting involved with the societies that they're in. And almost every college now has a Chabad group for the students, which has made Hillel very upset because they don't work together, you know, because Chabad still has separate seating. Uh, they preach very traditional Judaism. A lot of things go against the code of freedom of religion and, and, and tolerance to women on campuses and so on. So they, they're, but they're still everywhere and they're all, all over the place. And so in World War II in America, even though it's a much smaller organization, they're still everywhere. And they're they're using those political contacts that they had from the 
1929-1930 goodwill tour of the people in America and the American government who helped Rebbe Schneerson get out of Russia, they started contacting these people, Louis Justice Brandeis, Senator Robert Wagner. They got in touch with uh, Benjamin Cohen, who's the father of the New Deal, basically under FDR, um, of a Polish immigrant uh, from Orthodox uh, uh, origin. And getting all these people kind of motivated and interested, like, hey, FDR, you'll do so much good if you rescue the Pope of the Jewish world, if you will, with your Jewish constituents. And FDR, compared to all his predecessors, had put more Jews in positions of leadership in his administration than anybody else. So he knew of the importance of the Jewish vote. You know, Cordell Howell, as Secretary of State, was married to a Jewish woman, Ms. Weiss. And so he knew the importance of doing this, and this started shaking up the U.S. government to reach out to their Nazi contacts to help the U.S. government rescue Rebbe Schneerson. So that's the setting. Right, and it's a little crazy. So now let's talk about those that they reached out to. You mentioned a little bit about Block, and then we also have Admiral Wilhelm um, Canaris. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So, yeah, so there, there, there's a great, thank you for bringing that up. There's a great hero of mine in the uh, foreign department, basically, uh, of the United States. His name is Robert T. Pell, mm-hmm. unknown hero, but a moral man. And he was sent to the Avian Conference in 1938 in Switzerland. There was a refugee crisis, you know, like we have today. Um, that was going on with, within the Jewish world. Jews were trying to get out of Nazi Germany left and right, and nobody wanted them. So they had an avian conference to deal with this, and basically the world despicably said, we don't want Jews. But Robert T. Pell was our uh, uh, contact person to go there, and he got friendly with Helmut Voltot, who was... Secretary of Goering's four-year plan in the Nazi Reich for the economic recovery of Germany. Very powerful man, Helmut Volbach, who actually studied at Columbia University in America. So he was very fluent in English. And Robert T. Pell and he were both kind of bemoaning the fact, and Voltaire supposedly has Jewish background himself. His daughter, who I'm in touch with, claims that is the case. I haven't seen the document, so it's not in the book. But that might have motivated him, too. But he knew about America. He was a powerful Nazi, uh, but he seemed to kind of have a bigger world picture and realize this Jewish thing was kind of nuts that the Nazis were doing. So, he, and in 1939, the Holocaust, as we understand it, systematic uh, uh, extermination was not really going on. That only happened really with the invasion of Russia in June 1941, but that's a whole other topic. So at this time period, they're just trying to get the Jews out of the country. Yes, there's Kristallnacht that you have, uh, there's the Aryan paragraph, there's shutting down of Jewish uh, shops, but as far as systematic extermination, that's not going on yet. So as they're talking, Voltaud says, okay, Robert Pell, uh, you know, all, obviously all the first world nations don't want Jews. Who wants Jews? Uh, you know, most of them are not really uh, worthy of our time because they're speaking of Orthodox Jews here. Uh, at least that's one one piece of evidence I had from Robert Pell, but that was one of the sentiments of Voltaire. But he said, hey, if there's ever a Jew that you really want, um, just let me know. So now fast forward to 1939, as Benjamin Cohen, uh, part of FDR's brain trust, is talking to Justice Louis Brandeis, and they're talking to Senator Robert Wagner, and then they're going back to the Secretary of State Cordell Hull, they all say, you know what? 
Robert Pell's our guy. He has contacts in the Nazi government. Maybe he can help us. So Robert Pell gets in touch with Boltot in 1939 and says, we're getting all this pressure. You know, a lot of the Lubavitchers are pushing pressure on the White House and State Department, help get Rebbe Stearson out. And it's leading to these men. So Robert Pell calls up Voltaire and says, you remember that promise you made? Can you help me out? He's like, absolutely. Voltaire was in good relations with the head of the Abwehr, the German Secret Service, military secret service, and the head was Admiral Wilhelm Canaris. Now, Canaris basically told him, I have the, the perfect guy for you. He trusted uh, uh, Ernst Bloch. Ernst Bloch was a man of the world. He had a PhD in economics. He was head of the economic espionage division of the Abwehr. And he calls him into his office and says, hey, the, the U.S. government is asking us to help rescue this guy. It will create goodwill with the uh, U.S. government, which we still have, you know, diplomatic relations with. You know, war between Germany and America didn't happen until after Pearl Harbor. People don't realize that. So in 1939, we still have diplomats and ambassadors and so on in Germany. So Canaris says, yeah, I'll help out. Brings Ernst Bloch, who he had actually got uh, Aryanized by Hitler, and said, hey, I got an interesting mission for you. You're going to go up to Warsaw. You're going to find the most ultra-Orthodox rabbi out there, <laughs> uh, and you're going to rescue him. You can't miss him. He looks just like Moses. You know, So he sends Ernst Bloch off with a couple of his underlings, one guy who actually uh, had a grandfather who was a rabbi who taught him Yiddish growing up, and he was in the German army, under Bloch. And they go up, and they're tasked with convincing the Lubavitchers of Warsaw, while they're in uniform, that they're there to rescue him and get him out. So that's the setting of how this rescue started, you know? Yeah, it's this incredible story. And unfortunately, we don't have too much time to go into the whole thing. And I want to make sure that we talk about your next uh, book. Spoiler alert, he gets out. Um and yeah. he arrives on a ship. And the book details that just remarkable one thing after the other, whether it's German tour, you know, submarines or the SS going after people at checkpoints or whatnot. And eventually he gets out and now into America. And now the largest Hasidic community in the world is based out of Brooklyn, New York, because of American intervention and rescuing Rebbe Schneerson and getting him over here to to uh, the United States. It's a remarkable rescue story. According to Michael Barabound, my mentor and Holocaust historian friend, he thinks it's one of the most remarkable rescues of World War II. I'm biased. I agree with him. But yeah, so thanks for that. That well, plug for that book. Yeah, no, it's a, it's really just so unique. Although you say it's not completely unique because you say there were also some other Rebbies that were saved that it way. It's like uh, Ernst Block later on, because he had figured out how to do this, it looks like there was a movement also, not as powerful, but definitely had influence in the U.S. government to get the Gur Rebbe out. And the Gur Hasidim, who I've talked to, have similar descriptions of the Germans who rescued their Rebbe and got him to Israel and the largest Hasidic group in Israel is the Gur Hasidim. So Bloch may have been the secular half-Jew who by Halakha is not Jewish. His father was Jewish, Oscar, not him. But he actually went beyond the call of duty. He's really the hero in all this of rescuing Rebbe Shearson. And it looks like the Rebbe of, of the Gur Hasidim, and he's responsible for two of the largest Hasidic groups in this world today of having their leaders you know, survive World War II. Incredible. Um, this was... 
just there's so much more and I want to make sure everybody does read the book. It's long, but it's a really good read. I just have to put it out there and it covers Hitler and the Nazis and Chabad and other Jewish groups and Jewish advocacy and U.S. policies. And it's just all rolled into here. And you end the book by saying, what are you going to do today that will make this world better than it was yesterday? And that's what we do at the New Books Network. We ask, what is your next project? What are you doing next? Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it, Dora. So I have a book coming out in March called Japan's Holocaust. Uh, it's almost 30 years of research. I've been to 18 different institutions in the world and five different nations, uh, two of them being Japan and China, to do this research. Most people don't know that Imperial Japan, between 1927 and 1945, slaughtered a, mil uh, a minimum of 30 million people. And nobody talks about it. I mean, the rape of Nanking, a lot of people know about, or the Bataan Death March. But these were just two actions out of hundreds that all mirror one another that Japan was doing all the time. And uh, so when we say tikkun olam, you know, to heal the world, we must honor the victims. We must learn about why they became victims. And we must do everything we can to try to prevent that. And so when I put that, uh, you know, call to action in my book, Many people complain. Many people talk about this stuff, but most people don't do. And that's why, you know, get involved. You know, I, I, I served in the Marine Corps. I write books about that. That's how I do it. But, you know, there's Doctors Without Borders. There's Smile Train. There's just volunteering at the elders' home down the street, being kind to somebody that you can do to make this world a better place. Uh, you know, I've been very vociferous. And my attacks on the Ivy League presidents, especially Dr. Claudine Gay, with all her plagiarism and her dishonesty. And you got to get you fight with your pen, you know, and, and when somebody is a coward and refuses to denounce the genocide against the Jews, we have to go after them with vengeance. And that person should never be able to teach again that McGill and Claudine Gay are still at their universities and their professorships is a scandal. It she is. Right, no. She resigned just the presidency, but she's still being paid $900,000 and is a professor still at uh, Harvard. For shame. For shame that they have a bigot, a racist, an anti-Semite who did not denounce the call for genocide, allowed groups to support Hamas at Harvard University, and she has over 50 cases of plagiarism. She's a disgrace to academia, and she's a disgrace to a leader, and she's a disgrace as a humane person to not denounce genocide of any group, much less in the historical context of the Holocaust, the Jews. And try to end on a positive note, but that's, well, a, good, I mean, so that's yeah. a good positive note. That's well, not, I, here's a positive note. E.B. White with Charlotte's Web. You know, don't get overwhelmed. It's just doing, when you think in your mind, what can I do? Just do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. And E.B. White said, Every morning when I wake up, there's a side of me that wants to enjoy the world, and there's another side of me that wants to save it, and it makes planning for the day difficult. <laughs> but hopefully, at least you're thinking about what you can do to make the world better. And tikkun olam is just not a punch phrase. It's a call to action, and that's a beautiful thing about Judaism. So thank you. That's a great positive way to end. Thank you so much, and we're... 
I don't know if you say we're excited to read about the 30 million that were um, exterminated, but um, it, it will be an important part of what we need to continue with. So thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Brian Mark Rigg and his book, the about his book, The Rabbi Saved by Hitler's Jews, Rebbe Joseph Isaac Schneerson, and his astonishing rescue published by University Press of Kansas in 2016. It has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. And really, everybody should go read the book. You'll you see there's so much there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dora. I appreciate it.